Hello and welcome. My name's Karen O'Connor and this is Things That Make You Go Hmm. This is your podcast to help you make the most of the wisdom and experience that comes with getting that little bit older. Let's get right into it. Today I'm here with Donna Arnold. Donna was recently informed that you've been living with undiagnosed PTSD and depression caused by multiple traumas from when you were younger. I don't I don't want to go into that story too much right now because I want to drag it out of you. Do you know? Oh, no, no. <laughs> All right then. Talk about it. So welcome. And thank you. When thank you. We were talking on the phone. Your yeah. Background story, but what you do now and the causes of what you do now are really incredible. So, talk to me about first of all what you do and then why you're doing it. I think is the best way. Oh, oh, all right. So, it's just I had an epiphany. So, it's basically only the last couple of years that I was diagnosed with this undiagnosed PTSD and depression. No idea. I just thought, life, you just do it. That's the way it was. so it was going through the last couple of years and doing meditations and self-help and all that sort of thing I just get got to a point where I thought the way the path the journey that I'm going on is such an alternative type path I just thought I wish I knew this when I was 15 and that just kept going around and around in my head I wish I knew this and then all of a sudden epiphany probably I was reading a book by Carrie Green she means business and she talked about in her younger days where she had this little wish jar she called it or her father called it and he encouraged her he was very open to all this encouraged her to write down all her little dreams and put them in the jar and pull them out and read them every day and what it does it actually puts you in that happy place with what I went through back as a young person it was a case of I wish I had something like that to put me in a happy place because I honestly believe it would actually have steered me in a slightly different direction I'm not saying it's going to heal, it would have healed me, but it would have put me in a different place, helped me to heal myself a lot quicker, a lot earlier, instead of at the age of 50 and now 60. But yeah, so it's a case of what I decided to do is create this little kit that for young people around that same age, that's what I was focusing on, is to use and experiment with this little kit and different tools to see what helps them. Because The way I see it, ultimately, we all have 24 hours in a day. So, yes, and as teenagers, they go through life is devastating, no matter what level of trauma they're going through, or or even if it's just a little heartache or boyfriends left them, the world is falling apart. So if they had this little kit, this idea to go to, they could actually then focus on not delving and focusing on their trauma and what's been happening to them they could have some time spent in just some happy moments so it's less negative more positive and it's just something that I just thought being teenagers is going to be very overwhelming their conscious mind will take over but at least they'll have that knowledge in the back of their head when they'll go oh yeah I remember Donna saying that. I'll go back to that. And that's the sort of thing that I've done over the last 20 years. I've used these tools and gone away from them and kept going back to them. So I just thought got to be better because when I was that age, I went into my room and self-harmed. So it would be if I had that was my go-to, my personal thing, it might have stopped me from doing that. So that, yeah, so that's exactly what it is, a little kit. 
a little kit just to help but it's specifically aimed at teenagers isn't it why teenagers because it is focused on teenagers because that's where I just kept saying I wish I if I was 15 because usually this is where the trauma we could have gone through and my trauma started when I was six so it's also I have two one's called my dream box and the other one's called little miss wish kit so they're slightly different but ones for the younger age, basically 6 to 12 sort of thing, and then 13 to 18. The same thing can be used for adults, but I just targeted because that because I was thinking of what I went through. So that's why I focused on that's when the girls, even boys, that's when the kids realise they just everything is on, on top of them and it just keeps building. And if they have one moment, if a lots of little ones come along, it just compounds. So they need to know that there's something they can do to help themselves or I look at it, probably teenagers, they don't realise they need help. So it's just a fun thing as well. So they can use it more as a lot of adults use them, just use them to have them there. And it's just, I don't know, it's a tool. It's a comfort thing. It just gives you that, that focus to stay awake. It's all it is about bringing some happiness in the heart. And, of course, my dream box is all about everybody has their own dreams and goals. No matter who they are, what they've done, where, they're, where they live, whatever, they all have their own dreams and goals. And that's what puts happiness in their hearts when they think of what they would like to do. And it could be a goal that's five, that's two years down the track, could be six months down the track, or when they're full adults, as adults, what, have they, what do they aspire to do? It still opens up the heart and puts some happiness in the heart as opposed to dwelling on the negative. Yeah, so it's a very simple concept. And I feel that the kids, they a lot of them go through and observe what their parents are going through. And they're just the innocent victim. They just get, I know that I've seen a few websites of people that are opening up now, but myself as a young person, I understand my parents were going through a lot, but it was a case of my brothers, my siblings and I were overlooked. So we just had to deal with what life threw out at us. So this is why I'm looking, I want to do this get out there and just help create some happiness. I've also got shops I've been working on because it's all very new to me. It's all been last year I've been working on this. The workshop's a way of creating just happiness. So in other words, instead of promoting to the kids, hey, come and get away from your drama and let's make you happy, just come in. Do you like the idea of doing this? Just come in and do it and that's all it's about. But from the onset, the deeps inside is their happiness. It puts some happiness in their life. So it's just I have this thing that... Kids need to know about this. Too many get overlooked because the mother's being physically abused or whatever. And it's just there's so many different elements within, especially the domestic violence per, per point of view. Yeah. Talk to me about that. What was it that happened to you, if you don't mind? I've got to stop. Yeah, at six years old, I was sexually abused by a church minister. And this situation is interesting. I didn't remember it. I just blocked it all out just didn't remember it. And there was a couple of incidents and, I, and the other one I only discovered a couple of months ago. And it explains though some issues that I've had all my life. And of course, I grew up with alcoholic parents and my mother left when I was 11. And then she actually died of domestic violence when I was 19. It sort of just goes on and on. And of course, and my father disowned me, blah, blah, blah. I fell off his pedestal. And I forgive them. It's just a case of Going back to the first incident, I would get flashbacks, just a series of certain words, like for me, religion, I was dead against religion, churches and saying prayer, amen, just wouldn't handle it. But when, and then there was a specific car, this man had a, had an unusual car. 
And when I get with, I see or hear one of these clues and I get this same continuous flashback of four pictures. And eventually I realised it came out um, probably about 20 years ago, what it was all about. And then there was another time. It was very much the second one was about being trapped. We went, and this is, I was blown away the way it came out. I've always, I've got four grandsons, one granddaughter. And of course, I don't go and watch them play football. My sons, I had to go there. And I was just very nervous, always at a football game. Always. Don't like it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. I just couldn't watch them. And uh, I realised what it was is my father was in the Navy and we went to the Navy versus somebody else football match. The men were playing. And this particular minister was taking me to get an ice cream or a drink or something. But what he did was he didn't take me to the shop or the canteen or wherever it was, the stand where they had drinks or whatever. And back again, where my mother was, he took me around the car park and around. So I was six years old. I had no idea where I was. And, of course, if my parents say, stay with someone, say, you stay, you don't run off. So he took me in between cars and I see myself standing at the back of a car saying no because I had the strength to do that. And I could hear men when I play football, they bodies, and I could hear their bodies. So they weren't far away, but because I was disoriented of how where I was and told not to go anywhere, I was in this fear of trap being trapped, constantly being trapped. So this is where it's come from. I've realized now and I <laughs> and I told my children just last Christmas, past Christmas, why? I couldn't watch their children play. But anyway, yes, it was a case of I, I now know why I didn't want to go to football games. Such, such a little thing that sort of created an issue 50 years down the track. My, my oldest grandson is 17 now, so 20 years down the track, I haven't been able to go and watch him play. So what brought up this memory? How did that come up? Oh, I went to my I go to a psychologist. I visit her a lot, so that's what I've been doing. And she uses a program which I think is absolutely brilliant. It's called EMDR, eye movement, or EMDR, EMDR. Yeah, it is EMDR, eye movement. I can never remember the initials. But what it is, it came out, it was actually introduced by a psychologist in Afghanistan when the guys come back from Afghanistan. So basically focus on this instant PTSD and 70%, they had a very good success rate with it. So my psychologist decided, this is what we're going to try for you because she saw it as repetitive, undiagnosed trauma over through my life with all the different instances. So it's amazing. I love it because I just said to her, I'm not coming here to sit and talk. I wanted to do hypnotherapy, happy to do that, happy to try anything. So we did this EMDR, I think eye movement, something or other. Anyway, and it does, you think of a happy place. I think you do. And then you think of the sad place and some pain comes out in your body, be it physical or be it emotional. And it's amazing. And then so she goes, how are you feeling? Which she stops it. Because what they do is they set up a system where she's got headsets and I have little in little vibration pads in my palms and I have a eye cover and she has this going and I hear this with the vibration of each palm. I hear this And in the meantime, I'm thinking of whatever the issue it is I want to clear. And we go through the process. And I am amazed at how much better I feel 
after talking about a particular issue and it's usually about why do I do this? Why do I do that? And that's what we do over the last two years with the session. We do this and it it clears it. It's just amazing. Or it gives me an idea of what's happening and why am I doing it? It's great. It just breaks down and, it, and it's all natural. It's Yeah, it's just wonderful. So that's where that sort of came from. And that's what I said to her. I couldn't understand why, why I couldn't go to football games and why I was very nervous when I was forced to watch my sons go to football at football. And that's what she said. She said it was we'll just do this session and then I come out of it and I've thought, my God, I've seen, got all this memory coming back to me. And of course, it clears that emotion. It's amazing, which is what I believe in past life therapy. It does the same thing in hypnotherapy. Once you bring it to reality, it breaks the emotion from that. So it seems with the tears, it seems like I need to do some more work on that. (laughs) To it, it's because it's a big thing. Yes. Was that other things? Was yeah. that just a one-off incident or were there other no, things? No, he, the first one is he, and the reason why I didn't like it, so at that stage, at six years old, my parents were going, were, we attended church and whatever, and they were very good because my father was in the Navy, so this is the Naval Base down in Melbourne, and so what happens is he was very good friends with the minister. So basically, I don't, and I don't know why, but it was a case of I was allowed to stay back with the minister while he tidied up and then he was going to bring me home. That's when it happened. And, of course, one of the visions that I had all the time is when I was triggered by seeing this unusual car, I was sitting in his car and he were driving home and he was there and my head was down. I was so feeling so embarrassed, so emotional. I knew my brothers were not with me. I sensed they weren't with me, but I just had this same vision and then flashbacks. And his car was a very unusual. I knew it was a Volkswagen brand, but I didn't know it wasn't a V-dub. It was actually, I got my, thanks to the internet about 10 years or so ago, I said, it's a 1966 VW. Googled that. They come up with, I think they're called Brubakers or Carmen Gears or something like that. Very unusual sort of car. I said, that's it. That's it. It was just little bits and pieces, so I knew what he had done, and it was at the church while it was just him and me. Then my father being in, in the back, we'd only just got been in Melbourne for a short period of time, and, of course, when they get transferred, they usually stay for a couple of years. We left Melbourne. He got us, the family, out of there, and we went back to Sydney. We lived in my pa- my grandparents' house for three months until the Navy found a house for us. Yeah, there were other, I remember my mother pulling me up and saying, did he touch you? And I said, yeah, and he said, where? And I remember pointing down. So it's just little bits and pieces that on that that I knew that man, yeah, he's the reason why there was so much issues that followed on from that particular point. But, yeah, I blocked it all out. No idea, no idea until I believe the universe tells us you're capable of dealing with this now and I also believe it's always after you've got your kids to a certain point when they're a little bit more independent the universe says you're capable of dealing with this now so that's when pieces come through just bit by bit and it's just and it just just keeps coming out like I said I just couldn't believe the football thing I went oh my god that makes so much sense I haven't because I had a fear of going into churches and I'm taking photos of the outside and old buildings. And when I was in Brussels, Bruges, a couple of years in 2014, my travel buddy, 
He goes to, he grew up in a church. He was a choir boy. He walks straight into the church. And I'm just going, you can't go in there. You can't go in there. And of course, they're all open. But I was mortified, terrified of going in. And I must admit, I thank him because now, following that, we went to Barcelona and I went into the church all by myself. I'm cured of that. <laughs> but it was terrible with my grandsons getting christening. I couldn't go into those. It was just awful feeling, an awful, terrible feeling. So what happened? How did your parents find out? And then what happened in the intervening years? Because it yep. sounds like your parents were okay at that point, were they? At that point, when yeah, from two to six or whatever, up until 10, that was, they did their drinking. And my mother, the seri- more serious one, I didn't see too much of that. But from the perspective of this minister, they said something. I think they said, because I didn't say I don't remember telling them until she said, Donna, did he touch you? And I said, yes. And so that's when it snowballed from there. And at that point, I do remember my father flying out, going downstairs because this bloke had just turned up in his car. It was a case of then, I do remember, she also said, there's a bad man, so you're not allowed out of the Navy complex. You have to stay. Because we used to, kids kids used to wander. And it was actually down on the peninsula where the Navy base is, Cerberus, HMS, HMAS Cerberus. So I wasn't allowed to go. I had to get on the bus, go to school and come back. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. And she just told me it was a bad man. It didn't relate to my issue, but I now know that it was about my issue so she could keep an eye on me. So, yeah, as soon as they could, the family moved back to Sydney and got out of there. Do anybody else, do you know? I don't know. I honestly don't know when because what happened is my sister, I was. this is how we found out about the car. So I, my father was disowned me when I was 15 so I wasn't talking to him so my sister who's 10 years younger than me she actually went to him and said Donna's getting flashbacks this is the car she keeps seeing what they spoke about what my father would reveal I don't know but I just tend to think my father chose not to talk about it chose to block it off I don't know because he's an alcoholic as well he's a Vietnam vet he went to Vietnam twice and at, at his funeral somebody the fellow who the funeral director used to be ex-serviceman and he saw my father's record and he said my father was actually he came over to me and said your father was amazing from military point of view he he was like today's SAS and I went oh really he said they didn't call him that back then he said but he could do things nobody else could do but yeah he has been an alcoholic all his life yeah so I don't know what he remembered what he knew but nothing came of it for the fact that when my sister said that I was getting flashbacks so I don't know the man died when he was 45 so he didn't live a very long life wow so what happened when you were 15 why did your dad disown you I fell off his pedestal and basically that was that. And I think it might have had something to do with this incident back when I was six years old. I don't know, but it didn't matter what I did. I couldn't do anything. And he was, he had a lot of issues. He would embarrass me. He would, he embarrassed me constantly up until I was about 30. Every time he had an opportunity where I, cause I always did the right thing out of respect, invite him to parties and things like that. He would embarrass me. And he never let it up. So it was just another kick in the guts, another kick in the guts. And it was just lots and lots of things that he put on me that it was just a case of I just think I'm not, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm happier not seeing him as opposed to seeing him. Unfortunately for his last the last 30 years that I hadn't didn't really get in contact. I tried to write a letter about 10 years ago. He responded, but he just wasn't interested. Yeah, yeah. And it was, yeah, I fell off his pedestal, <laughs> basically. Yeah. 
And then what happened with your mum? She was an alcoholic. She, I watched them from about 10 years of age physically fight, physically fight. She's got had scars all over her from domestic violence and from him. And when she did leave when I was 11, she moved up to Townsville. And this is a... It, this is just a constant. At 20, I was still communicating with my father. I get a note, a piece of, a scrappy piece of paper on the table. Donna, your mother's dead. See me for details. So, yeah. So my brother and I went around there that night to talk to him to find out what was going on. One of his comments were, if because he'd been, they'd been separated for, you know, nine years. One of his comments were, if he didn't kill her, I would have. This man, another domestic violence, he just physically abused her until she collapsed and died. And we just had to sit there and tolerate it. But unfortunately, back then, there were no phones. We didn't have a phone, no mobiles. So what it was is she was actually in the morgue for six weeks before they found a connection for family. And they rang this Brisbane number out of luck. And as it turned out, it was the neighbour. And of course, I, I, at that stage, I had a young baby, so I couldn't go to Townsville. She didn't have a funeral. We didn't have closure. It just, there was just like a snowball effect with her as well. So she died alone sort of thing up in Townsville. And then 20 years later, because my sister worked in the legal system, she applied through the Freedom of Information Act for her record, her coroner's record. That was awful. He, she had, what I remember now, because that was a long time ago, she had bruising of the heart. She, one of the things, she had a ruptured spleen. She died from bruising of the heart. There was also bruising of the heart from a previous assault as well. So she had a really tough life. And I know that she actually um, was sexually abused as a young girl as well. I can understand now where she was coming from, why she was the way she was. So it's just really sad, just the way things, some, something happened. Yeah. Yeah, did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, you did, but yeah. there's something confusing me because you said your dad died when he was 40. Not my dad, the man, the church ah, minister. Sorry. It, right, yeah. got it. No, my dad. trying to add my... everything up and going, what? <laughs> no, the my minister father died, died when he only was a couple of years ago. Ah, and how did your relationship get with your dad? Did it get any better? Did you clear anything <laughs> up with him? No. I did send a letter working on that assumption. When I was about 45, I think I sent a letter hoping that maybe we could get past this because we're both mature people. And one comment that I did say in the letter is, you know, that my children are adults and I believe that because they're my children, I'll make the first step. He hasn't, so I've decided I'll make the first step with you as your daughter. But he wasn't even acknowledging me as his daughter. I asked questions because I was actually, I, you know that series, Love Child? No, I've never seen that. Oh, that was it was a few years ago. It was about single girls having babies in the 1960s in Sydney at a hospital called the Crown Hospital. I actually have, I think I've seen one of them, yeah. I'm a love child. <laughs> but the difference is my mother was a single woman. She met my father in Townsville. She fell pregnant, came back down to Sydney, lived in Parramatta with her parents. I was born in the Crown Hospital. The only difference is... I wasn't left there. She brought me home. And of course, my father is my father. They got together. And I followed that and I proved that with the records that the funeral director gave me a record of my father's postings from the 
1958 until he left the Navy. So I had, I knew exactly where he was. And yeah, he came down and moved down to Sydney when I was born. I forgot your question now, but I love the love child because I can relate to that. So. You must be very brave then if she kept you as a single mother in that era, yeah. because that just wasn't the done thing. No, it? no, she was 26. She was a decent age. And I think that's probably what it was. Yeah, yeah. And I think she really loved my father even though her lifestyle was different. But, yeah, it was just a case of, yeah. I, my father actually said she had abortions prior, prior to me. I just put it down to that she really did love him to choose to keep. I don't know. Didn't talk to her about that. There were so many things. Because she died at 46 and you know, she left when I was 11. I don't know. There was probably there's so many things that I could I don't have answers to. Yeah. Yeah, because the next place I was going to go that you probably don't have an answer to is... It's really interesting for your mum to leave and leave her kids oh, behind. Mary by walkabout. Yeah, I think I, I have this thing. I love to travel and I now know why I love freedom. And I now know why I love freedom because I thought it was because of the incident back when I was six. Maybe it's the same for her. She loved to travel and it's a case of she knew she had the, when she actually said, I'm leaving, we all had the opportunity to go. But because she was an alcoholic, she would wander, Mary on walkabout, she would wander for days and us kids, and we were only 10, 9 and 7, we would walk. So she would only hang around because so we had a, we lived at Brackenridge. So she would only hang around at the pubs at Sandgate and Brighton always. So we would go there in, at lunchtime and we would still be there at 10 o'clock. Yeah, we'll go home. Yeah, we'll go home. Yeah, we'll go home. And then what she would do, her and her friends would then go to someone's house, not home. So us as kids, in the end, we'd stay the night because it's dark. But the next day, yeah, we go home. Yeah, we go home. Yeah, we go home. And in the end, we just said, we're just going home. So we would walk at kids under 10 from Sandgate or Brighton to home and break into the house. So far as that. <laughs> To drive it, it's probably 20 minutes. So it took us a couple of hours. Never worried us about concerns. Never worried them because we, we used to wander, just wander. And in Sydney, we lived at Maroubra and we would wander down to Malabar and then we would wander up to Bond. We just wandered. Yeah, it was just one of those things. So, yeah, so she came when she was leaving. She said, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back this time because she would go for days and come back and go for days and come back. She said, I'm leaving. And, of course, my two brothers said, oh, I go. So, yeah, she had a baby six months old at that stage and asked, and she asked me if I wanted to go. I said, no, I just want peace and quiet. My father was stable. He had he was working. He was in the Navy. So he was working on not on the ships this time in the, in the dock, uh, dockyard and, um, I said, no, I just want, I wanted peace and quiet and stability. So I stayed. And then something else, I, because my sister was only six months old at the time, coincidentally, she stayed in a house across the road from my auntie's place. And they saw her, my mother, pulling the baby up the stairs and the baby fell out of the pram down the stairs. So Heather was probably shouldn't say name anyway so she was probably about seven months old because it was my father's sister they got onto him he <laughs> this made me cry I was I don't know why I cry with this I was standing out in the front yard playing with the hose my father drove in and he got out of the car with my baby sister makes me cry it's a happy moment but it makes me cry so from then from there till I was 16, I actually had a lot to do with 
come home from school, bath my sister, get her from the ch- neighbours and make sure she everything was clean and tidy, feed the dog, whatever, pick up some stuff from the shops until my father came home. He cooked dinner. And that would happen for those five or six years while in between housekeepers because housekeepers would come and go. So I was the feeling that from 11 years age, I had a lot of responsibility then. <laughs> God, I don't know why. It's a happy moment. Yeah, it always makes me cry. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel relief? What was your experience of that moment? Oh, probably relief, yeah. I always wanted a sister, even though we knew, even though it was a case of there was going to be such a big age gap and it was never going to work. But I think it was the fact that she was home because I just didn't like, I must admit, when my sister was born, she was born six weeks preemie because my mother drank through the pregnancy and then and at that stage they asked me if I wanted to go up to the hospital to get her after the six weeks and bring her home from hospital I said no because I honestly thought my mother would actually go to the pub and I said no I'm not going so they thought I had an issue with my sister but it was a case of I don't know where I was going with that now but yeah so I was happy to have her and she was a gorgeous little thing, big brown eyes, beautiful baby. Yeah, it was more of a relief that she was coming home to a stable, safe environment because we didn't know from one place to the next where we were going to be sleeping. At times we used to be put down to sleep in the corner of the pub on the floor while they continued drinking. So I think that's probably what it was. I knew the home would be relatively safe. I know this is a really shallow question, but how did you feel as a child? Like you're the eldest, you got your two little brothers there and you're all sleeping on the floor of the pub. Yeah. It must have been so scary for you. No, it didn't. No, that was a funny thing. I wasn't scared. I don't think my brothers were scared. We were just cranky. We were just ticked off that we're not going home. We'd had our play. We had our fun. We're tired. We're dirty. We just want to sleep in our bed and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I remember one weekend when you get into grade seven or whatever, lots of birthday parties to go to and things like that. And I was on the Saturday, I had a birthday party. And on the Sunday, I had a birthday party. And of course, my father was working Sunday afternoon. So my mother picked me up and I automatically assumed we were going home. So I was exhausted as a 12-year-old or whatever, or 11-year-old, whatever it was. And she's turned up with friends. We weren't going home. We were going out. And I don't normally do this, but I kicked and I screamed. I'm one of those horrible children. And I normally don't do that. But I was just so tired and I'd had enough. And that wasn't long after when she left. Yeah. I knew I just wanted stability. I just wanted peace and quiet. And if that's the best I could have there. At that time, my father was, everything was fine with my father. And he just had a couple of beers every day. He didn't go overboard like he did at the end. Yeah, years down the track. So in terms of, there's two places I want to go here. One is role models. Can't say you had massively fabulous role models in your life, can you? Yeah. They say, I read somewhere, they say that most children tend to follow, 85% will follow what their parents did and 15% will choose to go the opposite way. I chose to go the opposite way. As a teenager, I did drink, but as soon as I had the baby, I didn't drink. Everybody knew me, I didn't drink. I drove, I didn't drink, their father drank, but I didn't. So up until about I was 30, um, I didn't drink. So I swore that I was not going to have alcohol. 
alcohol was okay, but I wasn't, I was going to, I swore that I would not be an alcoholic. I would make sure that I, something that I saw every day when my mother was still at home is I would come home from school and she'd be sitting at the table drinking by herself when she was home. And I just don't drink by myself, never, ever drink by myself. And I actually, my sister, as being 11 years younger, grew up in a different environment. I went visiting her one day. She was sitting there drinking by herself and I freaked out. So I did, I swore I was going to do the opposite. No drugs. I didn't do drugs. I didn't do, I wasn't alcoholic. I, my, whereas my brothers, one is actually schizophrenic now from the trauma and he did lighter fluid, sucked in a lot of lighter fluid and, and the dope. And the other brother's an alcoholic. So I didn't do that, but basically mine was, is the anger. I was carrying so much anger and I didn't realise I was carrying anger. So it was vented slowly over the years, yeah. But, yeah, I did the opposite to the parents. Kept a clean house, though. Wanted their environment to be much more natural. Okay, let me go on to this. In terms of how you want to support young people now, it's almost because I don't want to compare anything. That's the thing, isn't yeah, it? Because yes. we all go, oh, my story isn't nearly as bad as hers and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And it's all about comparison. And yes. then we go into this thing of I shouldn't be sad because really I've got all this, but God, I hate my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how do you cope with that side of things? Because it's like you, you've got the you've got the history and the qualifications, can we call them? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you deal with that with the young people when, or with other people, anybody when you're talking about this? What's well, your most, story come into it? How do you? Most people see what I realized a long time ago is up until 14, it was at the point where my father disowned me. And I used to be able to attract new people and have lots and lots of friends. I used to have parties at home. My father allowed me to have parties at home because Lizzie knew where I was. We never had alcohol because we were too young, but we used to socialize a lot and it was brilliant. But then I realized after. I fell off the pedestal and I was something that he did, still not quite sure what it was, where I thought, right, from now on, to make sure no one hurts me again, and I know this mentality, the subconscious stuff, is I will hurt them before they hurt me. So I would meet new people in the first six few weeks that we would get on. Then all of a sudden they would back away. And I realized it was me because that psychological thing, before you hurt me, we're getting on too good. I'm going to keep you here. Can I so, just ask you, what was it that happened with your dad and what did you do afterwards? He would embarrass me in front of the family and strangers. And I remember turning up when he had a few male friends at his place and he went into his field because he'd had a few drinks. I sat there dumbfounded and thick in the guts and I could not, and these fellows didn't know what to say or do. They just didn't know what look what to say or do. And he did it all the time. It was just very embarrassing. Yeah, so it was a case of... The only, he was the only person, my role model. He was my only adult. So I think it was a case of, I'll stop that. So I think that's where it came from. So I've noticed that my friends now, that only people would say to me who knew me 30 years ago or 40 years ago, God, you changed. And yeah, it's going through this process. Meditating helps so much. I didn't realize that they saw it first, but the circle of friends I've had for the last decade they can see they are aware of my story and they can now see the changes as well. So it's a case of just still 
it's all very new. So still going through, do I try not to push people away? I notice the changes here at work. I notice how I speak to people because the only one person that I could control how I was my boss, only one person. Amazing how I did that. But now with that, with the help of what the EMDR and meditating, I, I swear I will never give up meditating now. I will do it till the rest of my for the rest of my life. I now notice that with certain things that people say, I know my response is different. It's amazing and it's much easier, much better. So I'm working on the principle that I'm, I will stop pushing new people away because I'm a very integral person, a very honest person, and, and I don't really, I'm not, I'm not nasty. I don't do anything deliberately. So it's all coming from a shell of protection. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what's happened at 14 or 15 or whatever it was. That's when that changed. And did put up go? The what did you do? What did I do? Yeah, where did you go when that happened? I'm assuming you left. I stayed home. No, I put up with it. It's a case of we'll get past this. I left at 16 for those first couple of years. I just hoped that the next time we could have a conversation, he would forgive me. But no, it was two people living in a house or the housekeeper or whatever. My sister were living in a house and he had these deep-seated anger that, and it wasn't until I left home I had, strangers or friends of his the people that I run into say he doesn't he doesn't I tell him I said I I said one fellow said to me I saw your father the other day I said oh yeah he said I said to him I saw your daughter the other day and he said who Heather and he said no your other one he says I only got one daughter and these are the things that people would tell me so it was always a constant bang another kick in the guts another kick in the guts they don't know that. They don't realise. But so it was a case of, yeah, we just lived, obviously, just lived in the house and until I left. He just, he did the moral thing. I was not working, so he put food in the roof over my head and food in my mouth. So basically he continued playing that role, but there was no love. There was no more affection. What is it in all of your things that you do now? What is it you wish you'd known at 15? With Now we've got that background story. Yeah. It puts everything more into context. Yeah, I wish, like I said, I wish my little kit is just a lot of alternative tools, things, affirmation cards, self-love cards, because I, I didn't love myself. I hope it was the man. If from psychologically, it was a case of if there was a man who loved me, I'm lovable. So over these last couple of years, I realised I love me. I'm a wonderful person. So it's a case of I just wish that I had access to the self-help alternative therapies, things like that, so I could go to that and learn and understand that I that I am a decent person and I am a lovable person and I love me because that's where the self-harm came into play. I was deliberately hurting myself because I wasn't worthy. I wasn't deserving back to that age. And that's why I think this is where this, my dream box helps this thing I've created and the workshops I've created. They'll learn to put some love in their heart and it's up to them to take the steps, of course. And it's not going to create miracles or cure, but it's just something to be put in their mind. And that's what I believe when something is said, it sticks if it's meant to stick, it'll stick. Just giving them to see there's an alternative way because I had no, nobody educated me, nobody guided me to what I could do. So that's what I wish. How can people get in touch with you? I'll put up all the connections on uh-huh. the page that goes all with right. the podcast. Yeah. But what is the best? 
best way for people to get oh and how much of the things where can people get them all right so they're online so I, I pack them up myself packaging them up myself and it's only within Australia unfortunately at this point in time because of rating but one for the older one if they go on to mydreambox.me it's got my story a basic thing about my story it's all very new so and it's got the my dream box which is for the older girl and you'll read about it and things like that and it'll show you pictures of the tools that are inside it all healthy say and then the other one you can go to choose a little a little miss wish kit same sort of thing and the my dream box is 47 dollars and the little miss wish kit is 34 i think yeah so it's a case of you place an order and i will pack it up and send it out to you it's it'll have i then offer a guide they go into the website and then there's a guide they can download and they can read which gives information of every tool in there if they know more information when they decide oh i like using this let me learn more about it there's a link and i'll just take them away from my website to another website that i feel is trustworthy and i feel has the information that they need to learn more about that particular item I also have on my website a guide, my my dream my dream journal. So it's a 30-day journal where they can download and they can start writing things. Also, let me show you, let me show, and I carry it around with me, and I forgot about this. So I learned this from doing a Bob Proctor course. So I did that. So in the box, there's a card, my dream box. And Bob Proctor says, and this is what he did from when he was a young fellow, he wrote on the back something that he wanted to do you write on the back I've got on the back of the card I've got a hand scribble on it but on the back of the card it says I see myself and you and that person just write for example I remember my granddaughter saying she wants to go to Paris to take her own photo of the Eiffel Tower so if that's her dream one of them you write on the back I see myself taking a photo of the Eiffel Tower and carrying in a pocket and you read it all the time and it's just a little thing that puts a bit of love in your heart a bit of happiness in your heart which is what it's about so there's lots of bits of information in in that comes with the box that can help them guide them to finding opening up more happiness you know or and folk, maybe if they really like me mine is travel travel if they really have something that's a passion help them go towards that and that's what it's about it's just finding so happy just thinking of that awful their awful trauma they can't do that because I know what happens when that happens and because my children are affected by that the biggest thing because my father cut off cut off and I never got affection anymore I could and that's funny I just realized I could have given my kids hugs until the point of about six years old and I couldn't hug my kids because it was not I wasn't taught that yeah it's just a case of if their journey changes just that little bit to give them that show them that there's a way around through this just stay with it it might stop someone from being an alcoholic it might stop someone from going down the drug road or prostitution that's all it's about just hang in there and just we got the internet use those links they're all free use those links to see what you know what you really and I don't even know these people with these links I don't know them but I just felt that this particular item, this tool will help you if you really like that and just help. It's just find something. Too many kids get caught. <laughs> and I appreciate you being willing to be so vulnerable yeah. as well and sharing like you have done because I really yeah. get it's from the heart. It is, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the workshops, everybody, I see the flavour of this year is going to be vision boards. So 
one of my workshops is a very simple for young people. Let's create something that you can take home to look at what you want to do. Because as soon as you see your vision board, your heart lights up. It's just simple workshops that I can do it online, but it's about I'm in the process. I'm talking to youth off the street. And also I'm giving away, I give away what I call a little mini dream box, just so kids, just to get it out there. So kids, this is yours to do whatever and just give them away. So last Christmas I gave away 30 of them, I think. I packed them up between my job and gave them away. Hopefully that's one kid that'll find something that will stop from help self-harming because I didn't tell you about that. That's what it's about. It's about helping these kids. And I want to do these workshops too get in touch with programs, whereas I'll just come there, do the workshop free of charge just to get these kids thinking of something else instead of the horrible stuff going around and around in their heads. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's about. Very simple. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. No worries, Karen. Thank you. (laughs) told myself I wasn't going to cry, but, you know, there's some work to do. I'll have to ring my psychologist now, make another appointment. (laughs) I think it's fabulous personally (laughs) because it just shows that you're being honest and you're being authentic. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Karen. You have a wonderful day. You too. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends, please. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some great ideas that can make a difference in your everyday life. Until next time.